Good morning again. Hey, I appreciate that wonderful and boisterous good morning, Mr. Nell. Thank you so much. So we're going to pray as we begin. Uh, but before we begin, I've had um, on my mind since last week this idea of humility. And it's just been good for God to speak to me about that because I needed a lot. Um, and some things that Brother Johnson shared with us last week really grabbed my attention and grabbed my heart. And I said, I need to meditate on this further. And then also out of that, really this conversation between God and myself about humility and pride. And I spoke with Brother Ted this morning about that topic, because Ted always comes first thing in the morning on Sunday, and he says, okay, so what's the title, and what's the passage? And I'm really thankful for that, and I was underprepared, but I had a title ready this time. I did. Um, so I told him, we're going we're gonna to talk about humility, and the title is Humility, Get Full of It. Humility, Get Full of It. And when I told him that, he said, oh, have you heard of my two books on humility? And I may murder these two books. And I said, I haven't, I haven't heard of these. And he said, one, humility and how I attained it. Sounds like a book I may need. And then the other, proud to be humble. So go ask Ted where you can find that at your local Christian bookstore. And all, a, a proceed of all of that goes to myself as well. I get a cut. Right, Ted? Amen. Amen. Guys. Oh, zero. Okay. But as we prepare to talk about humility, um, getting full of it, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And God, we thank you um, for your love. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for your gospel. Lord, where you have given us all a place in your kingdom. It's an incredible story, the story that you are telling. And it's an incredible kingdom, the kingdom that you are building and have built. And you are our incredible God. And Father, I pray that in this time you would impress upon me and impress upon us, Lord, just another portion of your glory. That we may, we may gaze upon you and be called into that. And when we see more and more of your glory, and in fact, get full of that, we find our place in humility. God, I pray that you would guide my lips, guide my mouth, Lord, guide my mind, um, that I would not get in the way of what you are saying to us, um, but Lord, be a bit of a help on our journey today. Fill us with your spirit, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So, as we talk about humility, we can't help but also talk about pride. And I have um, a video that captured my attention this week. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, this video that went a little bit viral on TikTok, but there was a, a lady who was taken on a date. And as she was taken on this date, she got herself ready. She really got herself ready for this date. And the video starts off, though, they're in the car and they're starting to arrive. So she's recording and um, broadcasting it for all of her fans on TikTok. I have no idea how many fans she has on TikTok. 
but she's broadcasting and this guy who's taking her on a first date so they don't really know each other that well he's like oh so you're recording okay well tell your friends hey for me and they arrive and as they as they take this turn there's a point at which her face falls a little bit as she looks out and sees where they're arriving and they're arriving at the cheesecake factory and she says he got me at the cheesecake factory y'all he got me at the cheesecake factory and you can tell by that how she felt about the Cheesecake Factory, which for me is a little bit of an offense. I go, man, what does she have against the Cheesecake Factory? Because that's my place. Oh, man, I just love to go to Cheesecake Factory. You get me a good, good meal. Um, I love the Thai lettuce wraps there, by the way. That's my favorite meal. And then afterwards, you got to wrap that up with, of course, some cheesecake. But for some reason for her, that was not the place of joy that it has been for me. Evidently, it's not a place to take a, a lady on her first date, according to her. So, um, he says, I'm going to get out and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open your door. So he gets out of the car, he goes to open your door, he gets to the other side, and she says, I'm not about to get out of this car, y'all. Click. She locked the door. And you can imagine how it went from there, right? Just to let your imagination go. Well, honestly, this man was more patient than I think I would have had in that moment. He said, so you've locked me out and you're recording me. She turns the camera rolls down the window on his own car to, to speak to him through the window. And basically, she's like, you brought me to the Cheesecake Factory? And he's like, so we can talk about this. So he gets back into the car, and then they proceed to talk about it. And she says, look, I was raised. You got, you're going to court a woman. And I, am, I have got myself ready to, I look like I should go into the Cheesecake Factory. Recording still the whole time. This brother, he patiently walked through it all, but I will say the evening wrapped up with him going, well, I think we're not going anywhere, and I'll, I'll take you to your house now, um, because you've kind of broken my rules. You, I guess I've disappointed you in what you had expectations for on a first date, but you've broken all of my rules for a first date, and I guess we'll just go home from here. And so he dropped her off back at her house. Um, to give her some uh, saving a bit, a bit of face. She did reflect on it later and even in that conversation come to realize some of the missteps that she had made. She had made him wait an hour while he was outside to pick her up. So there was all of that beforehand. Um, and she thought that that was okay, I guess. But anyhow, she was, she was receptive to some sense of correction. But it just grabbed my mind. I said that the pride in that moment, even afterwards, she reflected and said, there was a lot of I in that conversation, and maybe that wasn't the best. So she was able to reflect, and she was able to come to a better place, although maybe there's a little bit more learning uh, to be involved there. If you want to uh, follow that up and look that up on YouTube, you can go ahead and look up the Cheesecake Factory uh, date, and you will find an interview between her and the man that was taking on her first date, and another man who kind of steps into the middle to mediate and see what we can learn from a situation like that. But pride is something that we can easily recognize, isn't it? We know it when we see it. And not only do we know it when we see it, but it grates on us. I said, if I had been in that car, I would, what I would have loved to have said would be, okay, well, either you can keep recording and get out of my car, or you can turn the phone off and I take you directly home because this is over now. Um, I would have loved to kind of had some words, but 
that kind of pride grates against us, and it makes us want to react, right? It makes us want to say, I don't want to be around this person at all. Um, and in, indeed, this man had no other dates with this lady. That was it. Um, even though he went into the interview and had a conversation on YouTube to straighten it out, there were no more dates after that point. Something about pride is repulsive to us, isn't it? And I thought about that, and I said, I think we tend to have a bad taste for pride in others. And we can recognize it easily. But the challenge for me, and I don't know if you're like me, is that while pride is an abomination to me when I recognize it in others, conversely, really, in myself, I tend to have a good taste for pride in myself. I tend to feel very good about those moments where I'm proud. I tend to, it tends to feel good to me, and I may not recognize it as easily as I can spot it in someone else. And that's kind of a classic case, right, where, God's, where Jesus says, hey, you want to always fix the thing wrong in the other person, and you don't really want to see it in your own self. And that's really where I find myself. So as God was talking with me about this issue of pride, that was something I said, Lord, you've got to help me to see my own pride. And not only to see it, but then once I see it, to actually be disgusted by it. Those are two steps. And those are not two easy steps. I have to have the awareness to go, where is this in me? And it really kind of takes God to expose that and to deal with that. And then on top of that, for me to feel about that pride that's in me, the same way that God feels about it. Because God says that pride is an abomination to him. And as I reflected on the things I like to think about, maybe the books that I would love to read, and maybe the songs that I love to put on replay, how much of that is leading me and greasing my tracks toward pride? And if it's greasing my tracks toward pride, it is greasing my tracks to be an abomination to God. How much is my own music leading me to be disgusting to God? That's something that, sad to say, I really had to reflect on and go, okay, Lord, deal with me. Because this is a big issue. And I thought about it. How bad is pride? Let me think about that. If God says it's an abomination to him, well, that's already one indication of how bad pride is. Pride is something that for him, it stinks. Pride is something that for him, makes him want to vomit. Pride is something that for him, he says, I'm not about to be in the same room with pride. Just like that man said, well, the date's over. You're going home now. I'm not about to continue down this road with you. You've let me know that this relationship isn't one that's going to continue for God. When I bring in my own pride, I put myself in a place where God starts to say, this time together is now being cut short. I can't be in the same room with you, with you and your pride, Kelvin. It's an abomination. That's a part of how bad that pride is. Imagine the separation that it brings between us and God. Not only that, Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention. Which indicates then that pride leads to other problems. How bad is pride? It leads me into other sin. It leads me into this fighting and this warring and this strife with people that I love and people that I don't even know. Pride brings contention. That is strife. That is struggles. That is war. Imagine what could happen to our world if we just were able to suck out all the pride and remove it. How different would our world be? How different would our international relationships be? 
How different would our own families be? How different would my neighborhood look if I could just remove all the pride? Pride is incredibly bad. Not only that, but you look at Genesis chapter 3, and I'll turn there. In Genesis chapter 3, and I think we start to see also another aspect of how bad that pride is. When I say Genesis 3, some of you already just kind of like know what goes on in Genesis chapter 3. That um, chapter is where my Bible titles it, The Fall. The first sin of Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. He's a crafty man, the serpent. More subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What an inquisitive guy. He's so curious. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. She knew. Right? Exactly what, was, um, what it was that God had said. Um, and the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, and look for the pride here, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. His statement there is saying, Hey, look, God knows when you eat of this, you're going to be like him. He's keeping you from that that you can realize of hitting God's status. So as when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit there of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And notice that their eyes are opened says, and the eyes of them both were open. But what did they realize? Did they realize that they were as gods? No. The interesting thing here is their eyes being open, they knew that they were naked. That's the most humiliating thing that you can do to somebody, right? Almost like, okay, whew, none of us wants to be caught naked in front of anybody else. That would be very humiliating. It's interesting that in chasing pride, their eyes are open to realize, I'm naked. And they need to be clothed upon. And that's you and me. Um, not only did they realize that they were naked, it says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons, and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Notice that God doesn't even have to push them away. They automatically, in taking the step toward pride and taking the step of sin, push themselves away from him. So, who brought this invitation to them? Satan. And his appeal is one of pride, which indicates to me that pride is very satanic. This has to be connected also to a part of why it is such an abomination to God. When you think about the fact that Satan used to at one time, serve the Lord, and then at another, at some point, he rejects that job. And he says, I've got a better job for myself. Instead of working for God, how about I just be God? And I exalt myself and exalt my throne above the stars of God. And in that, there is pride. 
And then Satan takes that same idea and plants it here with us on earth. And we eat it up. We say, that, that, that seems like it may taste good to us. And maybe that'll make me more like God. Maybe that's my way. Pride is satanic, but do we see it? Do we hate it like God hates it? And if we don't, it's a good thing to ask God, develop a distaste in me for pride. Develop a distaste in me that when I hear it, when I see it, when I start to meditate on that, when I start to have these desires, God, that, oh no, that that doesn't even taste good to me. That doesn't even smell good to me. That doesn't even draw me. It repulses me. May pride repulse me and myself just like it would repulse God. And if I can feel about it the same way that God feels about it, how much that would change. How much that would change. It makes me think about Isaiah 55 where God says, my thoughts and your thoughts, they're not the same. My ways and your ways are not the same. But I will send my thoughts down to you like rain from heaven. And I will give them to you if you will receive them. And it won't return void. In that sense, I think that God is saying, hey, look, I have thoughts about pride. And I have thoughts about humility. And I'm sending them down to you, Kelvin. I'm sending it down to you, my people. If you will receive it, how different we can be when we receive that from God. So my first point was just really pride and what it looks like. It's distasteful. It's an abomination. It leads to struggles and it leads to other sins. It leads to this fighting and these wars. Pride is satanic. It's easy for us to see it in others and to be repulsed by it in others. But the trick in it is that it often is okay to me and I don't even see it in myself. And that's what we have to ask God to deal with. But next, right, pride isn't our focus here. Humility is. Humility. So my second point would then be humility and what humility looks like. And as I reflected on it, I think similarly to how we talk about pride, humility is something that when we see it in others, it's a bit winsome. We kind of like to be around people that are humble, don't we? Don't you love to be invited to somebody's house who's just like a humble, humble host? It's like, okay, I want to come all the time, please. It, it draws us. We see it instantly. We go, that is pleasant. I want to be around that. Just washes like beautiful and refreshing water. It's pleasing to us. And similarly to how we talked about pride, conversely, humility is something that I can have a bad taste for in myself. I like it in other people. I don't like it in myself. It doesn't feel good for me. I actually might find it repulsive in myself. Humility. Isn't that interesting? That with pride, it's something that when I see it in somebody else, I go, absolutely not. I want to be as far away from you as possible. And in myself, I go, ah, it's all good. It kind of fits. And then with humility, I go, oh, you have humility? I want to be around you, right? I want to draw near to you. But when I feel it in myself, I go, ah, that. but how can I have a little bit less humility, though? Maybe that's just a little bit too much humility, or that doesn't quite feel good for me, and it's repulsive to me on the inside. Isn't that a part of the trick there of pride and humility, that we feel opposite about it than the way that we should in ourselves? It's been said um, that humility 
is not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. And I thought, that's a helpful way to put it. Right? It's not the fact that I'm just out to make myself less and less and less and less and less and less and less of a person, less and less of value, making less of myself at every moment. But it's just thinking of myself less. I think that's a helpful way to do it, to think about humility. But as I thought about that and reflected on it, I said that's a little bit like telling somebody, try not to think about elephants. When I tell you to try not to think about elephants, of course we all know that what are we about to think of? Elephants. Yeah, it's really hard to not think about something. So then we say, think about myself less, how do I do that? So to me, it's really about replacing the thought with a different thought. If I'm going to think about myself less, I need to be thinking about something else more. I need to be thinking about someone else more. So I think that's really the invitation uh, that we have to there. Because when you think about pride also, of course, I'm thinking about myself all the time. And one of the funny pictures that came to my mind is when um, you may, driving along, um, see people walking around the cities and they have headphones on. You ever see them and you see the ones that you know, you can kind of guess the rhythm of the, of the music that they're listening to, the beat of the music that they're listening to because they're kind of like walking along with it, you know? It's, they're feeling it as they're thinking about maybe themselves and whatever music that they're listening to. I'm not really here to preach against a certain music that they may be listening to and walking to a beat. But the idea is I've put on certain music and I've walked around to it and the message to myself has been pride. And in that moment, it doesn't matter that Honestly, I've, I've done it when I, when I used to walk to work and I didn't have a car. I actually didn't even have a driver's license, and I was over 16 years old, and I felt like this was really a bit of a humiliating sort of a thing. All my friends have their driver's licenses, and they're driving to work, and I have to take the bus, and I've got to walk these blocks to get to the bus, and it felt very humiliating. But as soon as I put my headphones on, and my music was kind of speaking to me a message of, I'm cool and I'm good, then I'm just like, ah, I'm all right. Doesn't matter, right? I could be poor. I could look ridiculous, but the message that I'm listening to makes me feel pretty awesome. And that's a little bit maybe like what we look like when we bring on this sense of pride before the face of God. We're feeling like we're sufficient when really, like Adam and Eve, we're rather naked. But the message that we're receiving is inoculating us in the moment to our own nakedness and to our own lack. And it also means that I miss out on what God is offering in that moment. But humility is not thinking of myself. It's thinking less about me and more about someone or something else. So when I th started to think about that, what does that look like? Well, I think we need to think about God's own glory rather than myself. My mind should shift from my own glory to a different person's glory. And when I can make that shift, and that's really the big invitation that I want in this message, is for us to make that shift. Thinking less about me and thinking more about God. And if I can start to see the glory of God in its magnitude, start to see the glory of God in its eternity, start to see the glory of God in its winsomeness, start to see the glory of God in its power. Who am I? 
to make less of myself or to just think about myself. It's not about me. It's about God. So there's several um, passages that really brought me to this, this kind of an idea. Um, Matthew 5, in verses 3 to 12, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount puts a bit of a humble picture for us. Puts a picture for us of maybe the kind of person who's thinking less about themselves and thinking more about someone else. In Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So those who inherit the kingdom of heaven are those who are poor in spirit. If I'm to get the glory of God, I have to come poor. He says in verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Who's going to inherit this? The meek. And there's a humility and a gentleness in that Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they're the ones that shall be filled. Notice the humility written throughout these words from Jesus. Blessed are the merciful. Right? Not those who get revenge, but those who are merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Again, not those that get revenge, not those that are fighting and contentious, but those that are making peace. For they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So those who inherit the kingdom of heaven are those who, yes, are going to be persecuted for the good that they are doing. That's interesting. Notice the humility written throughout all of this. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward. In heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. There is humility written throughout those verses. There is humility written throughout those that make peace, written throughout those who mourn, written throughout those who are meek, written throughout those who are poor in spirit. Is that you and is that me? Do you want to inherit the kingdom? Do you want to see God? Do you want to be the child of God? Humility is a requirement. Revelation chapter 4 gives us another picture of this idea because I, I, I like to think that humility is just for here on earth. As long as I'm here on earth, this is my time to be humble because God has written my time for me to be proud. And that comes once I die and I've done all the good here that I'm supposed to do and then God goes, welcome into my kingdom. Humble days are over, Kelvin Todd. Proud days are here. And I come to the kingdom of God. That's kind of like in my mind how I would like that to play out. That humility is just for on earth. Because on earth I'm a sinful person. But once I get to heaven, hey, praise the Lord, I'm a different person. But is that a reflection of what God indicates about his kingdom? That humility is just for here and now. Look at what he says in Revelation chapter 4 when he gives us a picture of heaven. Revelation chapter 4, he says, after this, I looked, and I'm going to read a lot of this passage, but notice these things that are going on in heaven. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. He's leaving earth. He's now in heaven. Presence of God. What's he going to see? 
And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven. And how many sat on the throne? How many? One. In heaven, there's only one throne. There's one king. That kind of starts to give us a, a picture of where the focus is, where the power is, and where all the glory is. One sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. So around this throne there's twenty-four seats. And I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads, what? Crowns of gold. These folks have been crowned. This is a picture of heaven. Keep those crowns in your mind, because something's going to happen with those crowns. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Notice just the glory in this picture, the awesomeness in this picture, thunderings and lightnings around this throne. It is communicating a sense of awe. Have you ever stood in the middle of a storm and just been dumbfounded by the power? And that is expressed from this throne. Continuing, verse 6, and before the throne, there was a sea of glass. Now, that's pretty incredible, because when you think about a sea and a storm, right, these lightnings and these thunderings, you would think about, like, rolling huge waves. But he says that there's this communication of a sea of glass. What incredible tranquility in the face of such power. God's power is very incredible and even almost paradoxical. The sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind, and the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not night, sorry, rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. They rest not day and night from speaking about who? The Lord. And what about him? His holiness. And what do they say here? The Lord God Almighty, which is sorry, which was and is and is to come. And as they are speaking, it says, and when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, are they thinking of themselves? They're thinking of themselves less because they are thinking of someone more. They can't stop day and night repeating the holiness of God, the glory of God. And they are there in the presence of God, and they are captivated. How much more for us who sit here and we can only get a concept of what that might look like? 
how much more should we be captivated by the glory of our God? The four and twenty elders, it says, as they gave honor and glory to him, thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne. And what did they do when they fell down? They worshipped him. And worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Not I am worthy. Not finally I'm in heaven and I've arrived and I am worthy. Thou art worthy. O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Not thinking of themselves, but captivated, totally captivated around this throne and totally captivated by the fact that all glory is God's. And they're saying again, look, these crowns really are yours. Humility is not a thing that's just for here and now. It's eternal. Which says that's a part of what Satan robbed us of when, we, when he tricked us into following the path of sin. He robbed us of the beauty of humility in experiencing and seeing the glory of God. Humility is eternal. This picture also um, is communicated in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. And I know I'm reading a lot of the scripture, but I'm wanting to do here is just to develop in us a taste that says, I want to go home and I want to think more about the glory of God. That says more next week. And that says through, through, through all these days, I want to continue to see more and more of the glory of God. That says, when I read God's word, God, would you show me more of your glory and what that has to do with my day today? God, would you show me more of your glory and what that has to do with who you have made me to be today? What does that have to do with my calling today? Little is much when God is in it. God, show me more of your glory. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 2. Here, God is speaking to his people. In the book of Isaiah, he speaks judgment that his people need because of their sin and ultimately of what he is pursuing through that judgment. What he is pursuing as he's going to have to correct his people. His people who have turned from worshiping him to worshiping idols that they have made with their hands. They have forgotten the glory of God. And in Isaiah chapter 2, he's going to speak a bit about that correction, and what he is pursuing. So it says in Isaiah chapter 2, and we're going to read through a lot of this chapter, the word that Isaiah the son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. That's what you call ultimate, right? You've got mountains, and then you've got this mountain of God's house on top of the mountains. That's glory. It shall come to pass in the last days. This is something that we are waiting for and yearning for. Are you yearning for that? 
the mountain of God's house in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. What a beautiful picture as the nations just slide toward the kingdom of God, as they just are drawn toward the gravity of God's kingdom. All nations mm, shall flow unto it, and many people shall go and say, Come ye! And let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And notice the action that it's going to call them to. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Remember one of those issues about how bad that pride is? Only by pride comes what? Contention. And notice that in the magnitude of God's glory, when people are drawn into the kingdom of God, they take those tools of contention and those tools of strife and those tools of war, and they say, we're done with these. Because we have been brought into peace in God's kingdom. That is the power of humility. Because of God's glory. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then he talks about then what he has done, right? So this is God's call. He wants people to come and walk in the light of the Lord. But in getting them there, he has to deal with the sins that they've been in. So that's what he talks about then in these other verses. Verses 6, Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people of the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. Their land also is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. They have all this stuff that they've gotten from the people around them, right? Their own, own sense of glory that they've gotten from the people around them. And this is why God has to deal with this. It says, Their land is full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land also is full of idols. They are worshiping some things other than God. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself. Therefore forgive them not. And the picture there is, a man humbling himself before something that he has made with his own hands. That I'm going to bow myself to something that I've made with my own hands. And isn't that a lot of what we're drawn to in this world, that we slave for the money that we make with our hands? Another day, another dollar? This is the slavishness that our world would draw us into. And it's not to say that we don't work for wages, but notice the worship that goes on here, and also ask the Lord to expose us to our own worship that we are drawn away to from him. Are we drawn away from worshiping God into worshiping the things that we have made with our own hands? It says verse, um, verse 11, the lofty looks of man. It's another way of talking about pride there. 
The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. That's a day that we should yearn for. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, the one who sits on the throne. That idea is going to be repeated. He says, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up. Are we proud? Am I lofty? God is saying, I'm about to lift up my day over you and over that. There's no place, no place, no place, and no time for my own pride. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Verse 13, and upon the cedars of Lebanon, and he's going to give this picture of the great things that are in the world. And in speaking about them, he's going to speak about humbling them. And it's basically going to be a picture of what God does to the things that are proud in ourselves. What God does to the things that we think are great about ourselves. So he says, um, and upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon the oaks of Bashan, and upon the high mountains, and upon the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. And again, verse 17, And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And as we read that, ask ourselves, is the Lord alone exalted in my mind? So I ask myself that question, I would say that that's not true in my mind. In my mind, I think I'm, I'm something. I like it. I like to think about myself and contemplate myself a little bit. Is the Lord alone exalted? And almost the picture um, that I'm almost putting there is we think a lot of ourselves and we need to start to think of someone else more. The picture could be of being in line and saying, I need to give place to someone to step in front of me. That's kind of the picture in our minds. But also with that, I don't want us to lose um, a fuller idea. There is a bit of a caution when you think about giving place. When you think about that, that tendency maybe to make myself a doormat. So we should talk about that for a moment, just for a brief moment. I don't think that that is what God is talking about, and I think that that is the tendency where people would say, making less of myself Humility is not making, thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. And we need to make sure that we draw a line there. So the picture in my mind, when I think about a line, I think about my school. At my school, we have a lunch line. And we have two lunch rooms. We have a high school lunch room. And we have a middle school lunch room. And when it's lunchtime, oh, man, guys, look out. Because that bell rings and kids sprint. They race toward that, that lunch line because they want to be first. I need to get my lunch because if I'm not there first, I want to be in that line and I'm going to wait forever and then I'm only going to have like 10 minutes to eat and I'm also going to get like the, the food that's left. I want to get there first. I want to find my seat and I want to be able to sit by my folks and I want to be able to get to the microwave first and I got to get there. So they run, right? And I got to say, walk, guys, walk. So then they get there and they're in line. The, the kids are pretty good. 
they're pretty patient with one another. I'm, I'm pretty proud of how they've been doing this year. Um, but when you have 150 middle schoolers who've got to get through a lunch line, that's a lot. Um, and so what often happens then is you get somebody in line who goes, yeah, you can go in front of me. You can go in front of me. And as they do so, there starts to be a bit of a restlessness behind them. Because when you gave that person the chance to go in front of you, you spoke for everybody else who's behind you. And your sense of humility of, yeah, you can go in front of me, has now displaced everybody else behind you. And I think that there is a sense where there's this caution. Is our humility out of line of the awareness of the world that God has put us in? I have a spot in line, and it may be my responsibility to continue to move forward in that line. And we can all move forward, and we can all get our lunch in the way that is appropriate and that we're supposed to. God has given me a place, and I can walk in that place. I can be content to be there. So the word I have to say to the student who continues to let people in front of them is, think about the people behind you. You can't, you can't do that. So this can connect to our lives and the fathers who may speak for a whole family. Is it right for them to give everybody else's kid a spot in front of their own? Or the national leader who speaks for a nation? Is it right for them to give everybody else a spot and to displace the people that they speak for. I'm not making political statements here. I'm just saying that there is a sense where we need to understand, come to rest at the place that God has placed us and to accept the responsibility that he's given us. Not because I'm something, but because the calling that God has had for me. Does the place you're called to labor seem small or little known? God is in that. And if it's a big place that I'm called to labor, it's the same thing. It's the same idea. God is in that. Can I see the calling that he has given me in that? And be, am I content to hold that in the way that he has called me to? And the most important thing for us as the people of God, as we stand in a line and we think about where do I give place for others and where do I think about others and prefer them above myself, I need to make sure that I'm doing so in a way that doesn't now overshadow the kingdom of God that doesn't displace the kingdom of God. And I'll go to some passages that will draw us into that, um, into that picture. So, just to finish up from Isaiah chapter 2, he says, The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, in verse 18, and the idols he shall utterly abolish. Whatever our humility should do, it should abolish idols. It must, because that's the only true humility. It was not right that there were people who were humbling themselves before idols. That's a false picture of humility. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord, so idols have to be destroyed. The idols he shall utterly abolish, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the earth in that day. What a beautiful day. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, and to the, mole, sorry, to the moles and to the bats. 
to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, what God's glory does, it puts everything else in the place that it belongs. Idols are destroyed and people are drawn near to God. What a beautiful thing. And for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake terribly the earth, verse 22, cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? Where am I supposed to start to go? Let's talk about man now. He's like, cease ye, cease ye from man. The Lord alone is exalted in that day. What a beautiful calling. So my last point is how can we get full of God's glory? So let's get full of God's glory. Let's speak about some of the ways in which we see this in Scripture. First of all, along this idea of what we give place to and being content to arrive where God has placed us, in James chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, James says this, and I may not even read all the verses, but he says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. And then he says, But the rich in that he is made low. I think God is speaking there to the place that he calls us to be. Let the brother of low degree, maybe the person who doesn't really have a lot of status here on earth, rejoice in that he's exalted. And how is he exalted? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There is an exaltation within the glory of God when I come to rest where God has called me to rest. But the rich, in that he is made low. Now all these things that would make me seem to be great, that I could rejoice in, they're nothing. They're nothing. When I put it in God's glory, I am made low. And indeed, I can rejoice in that I am made low. He says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. So there's rejoicing in being exalted in the kingdom of God, but there is also rejoicing in being made low in the kingdom of God. That's a beautiful picture of humility. Can I rejoice in being made low? Just like I can rejoice in being exalted. What a thing. This reminds me of the... uh, Greek story of Daedalus, or as we often tell it, the story of Icarus. But it's really more a story of Daedalus. So in the story, Daedalus is a very um, knowledgeable man. He's a great craftsman, and he's a wise man. He has a lot of wisdom. In the Greek time, they would tell this story of Daedalus, and he first came from one country, and he was like the greatest craftsman there. And then his sister has a son, and his nephew there, his sister's son, starts to also grow in talent. And his talent gets to be so good that it starts to rival Daedalus' talent. And so Daedalus is now consumed with envy. So he's got to do something about his nephew because his nephew can't replace him. So he tries to kill his nephew and push him off of a cliff to die. But the gods save his nephew, and his nephew survives, and Daedalus is banned. And now he's sent to the Isle of Crete, where King Minos is. Well, he has a job there in Crete, and he does some work for King Minos. 
don't go into the details of all of that, but from that, that's where you get the creature, the Minotaur, some of the work that he has done. And this Minotaur, who's a beast, half man and half beast, is put in the middle of this maze. And he has to kind of like live there, and it's a place where you punish people um, because basically the beast is going to kill them. Eventually, Daedalus, because of his actions, is put in that maze. Basically banished by King Minos, and that's where he's supposed to stay and live out his days in imprisonment. And there's different versions of the story as the Greeks tell the story one way here and one way here, and Homer has his version, and others have their versions, and they add to the story. Um, but overall in it, as he's banned, he can never escape. It's an island, so he's got to escape on water, or there's a land path that he can get to get out, but the king has banned every way that he can get by land or by sea. So he has to find a different way. So he makes wings. And he puts them together with beeswax for himself. And not only himself, but who's in prison with him? His own son, Icarus. And he makes these wings for himself and for Icarus. And he says, hey, we're going to go, we're going to fly. But when we fly, make sure that you don't fly too high. Because what's going to happen? The sun is going to beat down on these wings. And it's going to beat down on this beeswax. And it's going to melt the wax. And all of a sudden, what's binding these feathers together to give you these wings is going to be melted. And those feathers are going to fall away. And you will fall. So be sure not to fly too high. Don't fly too close to the sun. But also, don't fly too low. Because if you fly too low, what's going to happen is that ocean spray, because we're on an island, we're about to escape by air. We're going to fly too low. If you fly too low, that spray from the from the from the from the sea, that foam from the sea is going to start to collect on these feathers and it's going to make them heavy and then they'll be too heavy and now you won't be able to fly and you'll just be drawn into the sea and you'll drown. So he actually gives them two warnings and that's the part that we often forget when we tell the story. Don't fly too high and don't fly too low. And when they take off, they fly and they're escaping and they have escaped and they continue to go past one city and past another. But then as they continue, Icarus gets really glad about this feeling of flying. And he goes higher and higher and disobeys his father, and eventually he's too close to the sun. The sun melts the wax in his wings, and the feathers fall, and he plummets into the water and drowns. In some versions of the story, um, Daedalus' nephew comes back around, and the picture is one where Daedalus' pride in attacking his nephew who was going to replace him is really the thing that he's now getting karma in some sense for in the loss of his own son. His pride. We tell the story of Icarus about Icarus' pride, but it's just interesting that it really is one about Daedalus and his own pride. But this idea of flying too high or flying too low or resting where God has called us to be in the kingdom of God, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. God has given us a place. Let the, also the rich rejoice in, the, in that he is made low. This is our calling in the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. And I'll tell one more story and we'll, we'll wrap up. And this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to how Paul writes about God's glory and about his own. And we'll wrap with this. He says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 12, it is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. In other words, it's not fitting for me to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. 
I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up, into the th caught up to the third heaven. He's writing about himself in a vision that he saw, and a glorious vision that he could be proud of and go, I'm the one who got to see this? Wow. Verse 3, And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words. What glory that he saw, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Verse 8, for this thing I besought the Lord twice, this thorn that humbled me. I said, God, would you remove it from me? I besought the Lord thrice that, I might, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The beauty of the glory of God is that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. There's a sense of coming low and recognizing who we are in our frame. And when we are content to be in that place, then God's glory, the Lord alone, is exalted in that day. Are you and I content to find that place? Let's get full of the glory of God.